0: flip over to Mark chapter 3. If you need to use a pew Bible, uh, go to page 787. Mark chapter 3, particularly verse starting at verse 22. Now, while you're turning there, Let me kind of refresh you by way of context. This is a section where Jesus is being now confronted and when we preach through this, Jesus was confronted by his natural family, he was confronted by his ethnic kind of national family and then he was talking about what the new family of God was being built and it was being built on him But in the midst of all that, you remember how his family was trying to lay claim to him, his national family was trying to lay claim to him, and Jesus was making the point. That's not how this works. You don't make demands upon me. I make demands upon you. In the middle of all that, however, he spoke to the scribes. And it was just a mic drop moment when he talks about, he's warning them that they're they're, they're, they're almost committing the unforgivable sin. And I said, oh, look, I know that's something that, that some people are very interested in, but we're not gonna deal with it today or that time. Well, today's that day. So what I wanna do is talk about this, this amazing, this interesting section of scripture on the unforgivable sin. So if you're in Mark chapter three, I'm gonna read it from verse 22 to 30, but most of our time is gonna be spent in, ch- in verses 28 and 29. Here we go, verse 22 of Mark three. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called, Jesus called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand." And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. Verse 27, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they had said, he has an unclean spirit. So here we have in these really three short verses, verses 28 to 30, one of the more shocking statements of Jesus. Of all the things Jesus says, this is one of those things that gives people great concern. Did did gentle and kind Jesus, the very paragon of virtue and mercy, the very man whose name is associated with forgiveness, actually just say... That there is a sin that will never be forgiven. That there is something that can be considered an eternal sin. Now maybe you just thought that this concept of the unforgivable sin was some kind of maybe a Christian urban legend or something. Or an apocryphal doctrine that some angry church elders came up with to keep a wayward congregation obedient. No, the unforgivable sin we see here right in chapter 3. Maybe you might think, okay, this is, maybe this is just Mark recording Peter, because we know Peter's account is behind the Gospel of Mark, and Peter just happens to be one of these uh, over-the-top kind of speakers who get excited, and he just threw something in there, but that's not really what Jesus meant. But if you look at the parallel passages in Matthew 12 and in Luke chapter 12, they both record Jesus talking about this unforgivable sin. This is in the Bible, so we need to talk about it because Jesus certainly brings it up. Now, depending upon your theological background, or wherever you happen to fall on a, on a spectrum of certain theological systems, either one of two things is the reality. Either A, you're not worried at all about committing the unforgivable sin. As a matter of fact, you don't even, you've never spent a moment thinking about it, or you worry about it a lot. And you're, you're secretly wondering... Maybe I, maybe, did I cross that line? Did I commit that kind of sin? In other words, some people don't think enough about it, and others think too much about it. So this morning, we want to just ask three questions of the passage before us, and those questions are this number one, is there an unforgivable sin? What does the Bible actually teach about this? Secondly, what is the unforgivable sin? And then thirdly, in light of that, well, now what? Now that we're going to find out what the Bible teaches on it, what it means, now we need to ask, well, how is that going to affect the way we live? So let's look at the first question. Is there an unforgivable sin? On this issue, like every issue, it doesn't matter so much what we feel or want to be true. If you are a Christian, the question that matters is, what does the Bible teach to be true? Not what I want, not what I kind of grew up thinking. What does the Bible teach? Look at what the Bible teaches in verse 29 of Mark chapter 3. Jesus says very clearly, it's there in red letters, so you know it's true, it's gospel, literally. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Let me make a couple comments on that because that's a heavy-duty statement right there. Comment number one is this. Verse 29 is not a contradiction of verse 28. I don't know if you noticed that, but they could seem easily like a contradiction because what does verse 28 say? Jesus says, truly I say to you all, all sins, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemy they utter. And then in verse 29, Jesus says, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit is not gonna get forgiven. So what's going on there? Is that a contradiction? No. Verse 29 is not a contradiction of verse 28. This is kind of a common idiom. We, we actually speak this way a lot in our language as well, where you have a general statement which is directly followed by a specific exception to it. And we see this all through the Bible. So as far back as Genesis 2. You may eat of all the trees, just don't eat of this tree, right? Exodus 15. All, don't let any of the manna remain until morning. The manna that remains till morning, you need to burn it, right? Okay. What about Matthew 15 when Jesus says, I have only come for the lost sheep of Israel. Your faith is amazing. Let, you, let it be done to you as you desire. And he's speaking to a Gentile woman. So we have these three strong general statements immediately followed up by an exception. In other words, the force of the general statement adds to the special Weightiness of the exception being illustrated. By making such a strong general statement, immediately followed by a specific exception to it, the accent and emphasis lay on the kind of gravity of the exception. So you can eat any tree, Adam and Eve, but not this one. Naturally, they think, well, what's wrong with that tree then? Right? So you you see how that works. So rather than the, the, at least in Mark 3, rather than the, the emphasis and the accent in Mark 3 being on that God will forgive all sins and blasphemies, although that is true, we'll talk about that, the accent and the emphasis is on the grave danger of committing this one particular sin mentioned in verse 29. So that's comment number one. That verse 29 is not contradicting verse 28. Comment number two. The sobering reality of the unforgivable sin is in fact shocking because of the very fact of the overwhelming nature of God's mercy and forgiveness. I mean the very fact that we're talking about an unforgivable sin in the context of what we know about God makes us uncomfortable, why? Because we know of the overwhelming nature of God's willingness to forgive and give mercy. So in contrast to that, that's why it's so shocking. Friends, the sweetest news a sinner can hear is that your sins are forgiven. That God no longer holds his sin against him, that he is freed from his chains, that he's released from his bondage, that the weight of their damnation has been completely and absolutely cast off. 1986 is when I, remember, when I felt that. 1986 when I was 16 years old and I realized that I do not answer for my sins nor will I ever. It was a mind-blowing moment. Do you remember that? And that's the greatest thing you could hear. That no matter what I have done, I have been forgiven. I have been forgiven. And likewise, the worst news in the world is to hear that God will never forgive you. I mean, just the thought of that sucks the air out of the room, right? Just the thought of that. To think... That there could be a possibility that at the end of life that one day you may face the very essence of purity, of justice, of righteousness, of love. And you may have to face that that being with all your deceit and lies and self-righteous smugness and pettiness and entitlements and all that. And you have to face him and make a case for that before him is a horrifying thought. So the biblical idiom here makes us feel the full weight of this possibility. It's almost as if Mark wants to elicit from us, we read this, we, we would say, man, if this is even the slightest possibility that this could happen, tell me so I can avoid it with everything I have. That's kind of the idea that I wonder if Mark and, and Matthew and Luke as they're writing this and including that in, is, is wanting us to feel. So so comment two is the the, the overwhelming nature of God's forgiveness is what makes this topic so shocking to us and so, so hard to wrap our minds around. Comment number one, it's not a contradiction. Comment number two is the contrast is what shocks us. Finally, last comment is this. Never means never. As in, never has forgiveness guilty of an eternal sin. Now, as hard as it might be, and I hope that it hasn't been the case for any of you, but it it could be, as hard as it might be for, for you to hear someone say, and those hard words, I'll never forgive you, as hard as that is to bear, the fact is that you have other relationships, other people who will love you and show you grace and, and be in communion with you, right? And, and at the worst case scenario, at the end of all things, if that person was a Christian, one day that relationship will be restored, right? But when God says never to you, that is truly never. No other relationship will make up for that lack There's no other love that can sustain or fulfill you if God tells you never. Never means never. This is what uh, John Piper says on this passage. If all the mountains were wearing down at the rate of one millimeter every thousand years, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will still be unforgiven when the face of the earth is as smooth as a billiard ball. That's heavy. Which is why I I had to find a picture where he's smiling to soften it a little bit there. Um, But to emphasize the point, if you look in the parallel account of this passage in Matthew chapter 12, verse 31 and 32. Jesus says that the sin against the Holy Spirit, to sin against the Holy Spirit in this way, has repercussions that you will not be forgiven in this life or the age to come. In this age is the actual wording of the text, or in the age to come. What that tells us is there is the possibility for someone to commit this sin here and now, and it will never be forgiven them this age or in the age to come. So blasphemy of the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. If, friends, if forgiveness is withheld for eternity, that means guilt is sealed for eternity. And th- What that tells us is that God is not neutral to sin. I know most of you already know that, but we need to make that statement. God is never disengaged on this topic. He will do one of two things with all sin. Either God will forgive it or He's going to punish it, but He's not going to overlook it. He's not going to ignore it. He will never, ever be cruel. He'll never be aloof, objective, or neutral when it comes to evil, rebellion, apathy, whatever word you want to use to describe sin's essence. God will never be standing on the side casual about this situation. So the clear answer to the first question, is there an unforgivable sin? We see it in the text. If you're a note taker, you can write down uh, this passage, Mark 3, 29, write down Luke 12, 10, write down uh, Matthew 12, 31, 32. They all record the same conversation. Each writer, as usual, adds a slight different emphasis or nuance, but they all talk about, so the Bible clearly talks about an unforgivable sin. So this naturally will lead us to then to the next question, well, if there is an unforgivable sin, what is the unforgivable sin, right? What is it? Now the answer to this question is very simple because it's right there in the text, but understanding what it means is the tricky part. In each instance, and I talked to you Mark 3, 29, Luke 12, Matthew 12, it clearly states that the unforgivable sin is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That's very simple, so that's the answer. But what exactly does blasphemy of the Holy Spirit mean? That's the part that's not as simple that we need to tease out, so let's do that first. So it's very clear there is an unforgivable sin. All three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, say what the unforgivable sin is. It is the blasphemy or sin against the Holy Spirit. Now we need to find out what does that mean. Let's start with what does it not mean, okay? Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit does not mean that sometime in your life, in a point of despair or anger or frustration, you cussed out at God or you got really angry at him, right? And now you feel like you've you've committed blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That is not what that means. If you come from a Catholic background, you may have been told once or twice, blasphemy, right? that's, That's not what that's getting at. Now, is it wise to be angry at God? No, it's not. Is it sinful to be angry at God? I can make a case to say, yes, it is. Now, I know in our cultural time, authenticity is the buzzword, and so especially amongst younger believers 40 and below, it can be kind of popular to say, well, I'm being authentic with God and I'm just letting my anger show, right? Well, just because other people are hanging off cliffs taking selfies does not mean that's a wise thing to do, right, in the same way, Yes, life is hard, there's difficulty, but being angry at God is like is foolishness and it is sin, but it's not blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So it's not you got mad, you cussed them out and, and you did things that you genuinely regret and you feel like, oh no, I've crossed the line, that is not blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit or sin against the Holy Spirit is not your failure To win victory over sin in your life. Let me say that again. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not a failure on your part to win victory over the sin in your life. On the one hand, we do want to teach the victorious Christian life, that there is victory. I hope many of you have experienced that. But on the other hand, For the metric of your faithfulness to God be based on victory misses the point that's more our cultural business idea of success than biblical theology. The key is you're seeking obedience, that you're trying, that you're submitting yourselves to the Lord. It's not a matter about getting the victory. Don't hear me wrong. Don't don't hear me say that you don't need any change or growth in your life. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just simply saying The fact that you still have sin in your life is not evidence that you've blasphemized against the Holy Spirit, right? Thirdly, what it's not, it's not the fact that you struggle to obey the commands of God. John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commands, right? The reality is, in a fallen world, on the one hand, the commands of God are light and easy. We take his burden upon us, his yoke upon us, because it's light. But on the other hand, those commands can be very hard. Especially depending upon your history, the, the, the amount of, of godlessness that you've lived, the sin against you. There's a lot of variables at play there. But simply acknowledging that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit isn't the fact that you find God's commands hard. That just means you're being really honest. Right, can, can, we, can we put that on the table? That, that sometimes, this is the testimony to how much we're fallen in our sin. It sometimes seems like in this life that sin is like a bowl of caramel M&Ms and righteousness is a bowl of broccoli, right? You're like, oh, well, I know I gotta, I gotta choose the broccoli, you know what I mean, because I'm a good Christian. Now, now notice what I said, it seems that way because what sin has done to us Sin is not a a bowl of caramel M&Ms, right? But so often we associate sin that way and we think being godly means eating the broccoli, right? Here's the reality. Sin has so blinded us and confused us that we we actually do see what should be a a bowl of maggot-filled slime covered in a candy coating. We see it as something that's desirable, right? And we see what is life, joy, and pleasure as like greens, right? But the reality is as you grow in Christ, you begin to see sin for what it is and you see righteousness for what it is and then you want to choose that. But the process is hard, right? That's all I'm getting at. So blasphemy in the spirit is not losing your cool at God at one time and and being so frustrated. It is not that there's still sin in my life and I don't have victory. It is not God's commands are hard. Those, Those are not blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So the question then is well, what then is it? So I've got this, this working definition. I'm gonna leave that up there so you can write it down or take a picture of it. And it's kind of mouthy. So I'm gonna read it and then we're just gonna, everything I say from here on out is trying to unpack this. Um, here we go, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, a consistent and persistent rejection of the work of God in Christ, in Jesus Christ. This rejection shows itself in a denial in practice or profession of the saving reality and Lordship of Jesus Christ. Wow, that's a mouthful. What do we mean? Let's unpack that. Draw your attention back to Mark's gospel. Stay in chapter three, flip over a page to Mark chapter one. We wanna understand blasphemy in the Holy Spirit in the context, the larger context of Mark's gospel. So in Mark chapter one, verse seven and eight, as Mark is introducing the whole gospel narrative, he's talking about John the Baptist and listen to what John the Baptist says. And John preached, Mark 1 7, saying, after me comes one, uh, comes he who's mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, because he was doing it in the Jordan River but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So what's John doing? John was talking about the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. And if you've been in our Mark study, you know this. And the radical, uh, personal, universal transformation that the gospel brings. And John was talking about there's going to come one mightier than he that would make all things right this one that's to come would baptize with the very Spirit of God. Now, let's go to Mark chapter three. In our context, Jesus is being shown as that mightier one to come. So look at verse 27 of chapter three. Jesus saying, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man then indeed he may plunder his house. So why is he saying that? Remember, what the the, the scribes in verse 22 are responding to is Jesus doing all these amazing miracles and he's casting demons out of people and then the scribes were saying, oh the reason he can do this is he's in cahoots with the devil, that's what's going on. And Jesus gives the parable and says, you guys don't make any sense at all. That would be completely incoherent. What's really taking place is until the strong man, representative of the devil, is bound, no one can plunder his goods. You see me casting out the demons. I'm the mightier man who's binding the strong man, and I am now plundering his goods, and you're seeing my kingdom evidence all around you. So so what's happening here, in spite of these scribes in verse 22, in spite of all the miracles they saw, and if you've been in our Mark study, you know from chapter 1 up to chapter 3, miracle after miracle after miracle, in spite of all the miracles they saw, in spite of all the teachings they heard of authority that came from Jesus, in spite of all the transformation of what they were seeing happening all around them. They not only continued to deny Christ, but now they call him a servant of darkness filled with a demonic spirit. You see that in verse 30. For they had said, for they, the scribes had said, Jesus has an unclean spirit. Now something very important, note this. Jesus did not say that these scribes committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. He He doesn't say that, but he's warning them. In other words, they have—they're they're coming right up to that line, guys. You are completely denying what you're seeing here. So I want to be clear: blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not so much, in the case of Mark three, calling Jesus the devil per se. It's not so much a particular action as much as it is the posture of one's heart, right? It, it's not so much things you do, so much as the the rebellious impulse to fight against him, and to deny what is so clear, to be at odds with his kingdom. Now, let me say this, because we can tie this together. This is certainly true of those who completely deny God out in the world all the time, but this can be true of people who go to church every weekend too, right? Just because you sit in a church does not mean that you are not at odds with God's kingdom, especially in a culture like ours, where Christianity, it's, it's easy, right? It's almost sometimes expected, especially if you go in the Midwest. It's expected for you to be in church. So I just want to be clear that it's not a particular action, but a posture of the heart to embrace darkness. You may not call it darkness, but if the Bible calls it darkness, to embrace that in evidence of the light and to deny it. Let's unpack that. Go to John's gospel. Keep your finger in Mark. I want John to unpack this for us a little bit. Uh, John is to the right of Mark by a couple pages, John chapter 1, John chapter 1. So here we have another gospel account similar to Mark's account, and it's starting off at the beginning, but John the Apostle is going to give us a slightly different perspective. He's also going to talk about John the Baptist. Here we see it in Mark, excuse me, John chapter 1, verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. John was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Verse 9, the true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him go over to chapter 3 of John's gospel chapter 3 verse 19 and so John is continuing on this con- this kind of motif verse 19 of chapter 3 and this is God's judgment this is the judgment the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. So, friends, in other words, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is an act of resistance against the Holy Spirit of God so grievously that he withdraws forever his convicting power so that we are never able to repent nor desire to seek God's forgiveness. That's a reality to sin against the Holy Spirit, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is to resist His work so grievously that He just forever withdraws His convicting power. And so you, you have no desire to repent. You have no desire to seek God's mercy because He's withdrawn that gift from you. Look at John chapter 12. John continues this theme. We'll go back to Mark after this. John chapter 12, verse 35. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of life, light. Look at verse 37. So this is John's commentary on what's going on. Though he had done so many signs before them, they, did not, they still did not believe in him so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. Therefore, they could not believe. Notice that. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes, and he has hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. As I said, this is true of all humanity. All humanity can deny and resist what God is doing, but there is a scary implication here for us, isn't there? The greater your exposure to the gospel and the things of God, the greater your chance of committing this particular sin. Listen to what this one theologian says in his commentary on Mark's gospel. In addressing this warning to the scribes in verse 22 of Mark 3, Mark signifies the unique pitfall that this sin can pose for religious people. Sinners and tax collectors are less likely to commit this sin than are the learned religious and moral. In this respect, wickedness poses a lesser problem to the grace of God than do pride and self-righteousness. You get what he's saying here? He's not saying that only people who go to church can experience this. What he's saying is that because we're often so presented with the evidence of what God is doing, we hear the word of God, we're seeing lives transformed around us, and yet if we find ourselves resisting against what God is doing, completely denying what's happening, you can do all the external trappings, but in your heart you may be guilty of resisting the Holy Spirit himself. Friends, it is not hard for people to misunderstand religion because it appeals to a kind of moral compass in human nature, right? Remember, we talked about this in our study of Jonah. The human heart apart from God is not atheism. It's just it doesn't trust in God. The human heart is fundamentally very religious. It's just we don't trust God. So what they're saying is the more exposure we have to the things of God, and the more we continue to resist it, the greater chance we have of falling prey to this problem. So let's get back to our outline. Yes, there is an unforgivable sin, clear in the scriptures. What is it? It's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is to say, someone who refuses to acknowledge the work of God in Christ in such a way that they consistently and persistently reject his testimony and his lordship. Emphasis on lordship, right? As Americans, we have a hard time with lord and, and kings, but this is not a democracy. King of kings is not an elected title, right? So, we, 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 we deny him his lordship in our lives in such a way that the Holy Spirit no longer convict them and thus draw them to repentance and thus allow them to receive the free, merciful forgiveness in Christ. So let me button it up this way. In this sense, this person can no longer be forgiven for the same reason a crook will never find a cop. Okay? Let me say that again. In a sense, this person can no longer be forgiven for the same reason a crook never finds a cop. Why is that? Because a crook never looks for a cop. Right? It's the same dynamic. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not something that you inadvertently commit. You're not gonna commit it mistakenly this afternoon. Whoops, oh, and just, that was it, I'm doomed now, right? It, blasphemy is not the Holy, against the Holy Spirit is not the kind of thing, it's not the kind of sin where this particular practice, I've committed it for the thousandth time and grace ex- expired at 999, now I'm doomed. I committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Mm-mm. In fact, if you are worried and concern that you have offended God, that you have violated His holiness, and you're fearful of that and you want to be different, that's great evidence that you have not committed this sin. Likewise, if you're not even concerned at all about the state of your soul, you're not even, you, you thinking of kind of showing fruit of a genuine Christian conversion at all, It doesn't matter how many times you profess it, you are likely a candidate for committing this sin. I know that's harsh, but I'm not saying that if you are a Christian, you can lose your salvation. Let me be clear on that. What I am saying very clearly is do not trust external realities of a religiously inclined culture or family background And mistake that for true regeneration of a heart that now sees broccoli as beautifully wonderful, delicious treats, right? Do not forget, do not confuse externality for a change of heart. That's what I'm saying. So... Is there a forgi- uh, uh, the unforgivable sin? Yes. What is it? Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But what is that? It is consistently resisting the work of God in your life in contradiction to all the evidence given and fighting at odds in light of all the evidence you have consistently in such a way that the Holy Spirit removes his convicting power from you and you are no longer even able to repent of your sin. What that means, friends, is if there's ain't... Well, I'm getting into point three. So the question is, now what? Let me give you two action items that come from this. And they're the verb run. Run from sin, run to grace. Run from sin and run to grace. Friends, the fact that there is even the possibility of an unforgivable sin, that there can come a point in a life of sin after which the Holy Spirit will no longer grant repentance, the fact that, that, that just the possibility, now you might say, Rick, I, I, I disagree with your interpretation of Mark chapter three. That's okay, it's actually in the text. So if it's in the text, the fact that it's, there's the slightest possibility should make you run from every vestige of sin. I mean, that's just the reality of it. If there's even a slightest possibility, I wanna get as oh, far away from that as possible. Friends, none of us know when the moment of toying with your sin crosses the line to where you're, your, heart, your heart is irrevocably hard to the things of God and you don't want anything to do with Him. None of us knows that moment. I can't tell you when that is. For some, it, it might be the thousandth sin. For others, it could be the fifth sin. I, the, the reality, it's a posture of the heart in light of what all God is doing. You just don't know. So Christian, I'm talking to you. If you are a Christian, if you proclaim Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you still wrestle, you, you don't you, 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 I'm going to lay it back up. I'm going off the note. So do not trust religion. Trust that you're seeing fruit of the spirit, Galatians five. Love, joy, peace, righteousness is flowing out of your heart don't trust that you sit here, don't trust that you tithe, don't trust that you're involved, trust that you find yourself hating sin more, not the sin around you, not the sin of the person sitting next to you, the sin in your own heart, that you're starting to hate that sin more and more than anything else than the sin around you, that you take sin seriously because Jesus did, he took it very seriously, Mark chapter 9, and if your hand causes you to sin, what's he say, cut it off, It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Friend, if anything, our series in the Minor Prophets should tell us is God takes sin seriously, doesn't he? He does. The question is that the prophets keep asking us is do you? Do you take it seriously? Do we take it seriously? And I, and I don't mean the big sins, the sins that the whole world would agree with murder, adultery, embezzlement, all those kinds of things, right? Because the Bible constantly is trying to get us to think of sin not as things we do, but a posture of one's heart. So, friends, do you you take offense easily? Do you get angry often? Are you a thankless person? Those are all, you're not going to see that outside. Those are all postures within your heart that reveal what's going on and through your actions. When was the last time you were seeking to encourage people instead of being someone who criticizes? Do you tear people up? Do you build them down? Do you serve or do you demand? Do you wait for people to serve your needs, meet your expectations, fulfill your desires? All these are evident of a heart of self a heart of sin. More importantly, are you actively fighting against these things that you notice within you? Or do you just kind of say, hey, chalk it up to my personality? Or that's just the way things are? Or I was raised this way, that's what I know. My friends, if you are looking for an excuse, the world, your flesh, the enemy of your soul will give you everyone you need, right? And that might make you feel okay. That might make you think I'm normal because after all, everyone else is this way. But you may never know. You might be resisting the Holy Spirit's work in your life. And whatever that sin might be, whether it's subtle, real sly, no one knows about it, just you, or really obvious because it's having consequences in people's lives. Maybe on, on the surface, it looks virtuous, Right? Or maybe it just looks really bad. Whatever it might be, run while you can. Friends, feeling a sense of guilt, conviction. I know in our culture, guilt is like a, the baddest thing that can happen. But from a biblical perspective, if you feel guilt, that's a gift. Because you're still feeling God saying, nope, don't do that. Don't do that. You know that's wrong. If you feel it, respond. Don't, don't be like that buzzer who sees the carcass floating on a piece of ice in the river, lands on it, starts eating that carcass. Yeah, he knows it's dangerous because the falls are right there, but he looks at his wings, his talons and says, I'm strong, I can fly away when I want, and continues to eat the carcass until he realizes he needs to get off and he raises his wings to fly away, only to realize that his claws are now frozen into the ice. Neither in this age nor the age to come The spirit of holiness has withdrawn itself from an arrogant sinner. Run from sin. Let's wrap this up. (laughs) Secondly, run to grace. You've heard the warning, now hear the offer. Mark 3, all sins will be forgiven and whatever blasphemies utter. 2 Corinthians 6, today is the day of salvation. Isaiah 55, seek the Lord while he may be found. Cry out while he is near. Run to grace and run quickly because he longs to forgive, right? Don't be the person that feels like, "Ah, I've got no problems. I'm okay. I don't need to examine myself. I'm not saying your salvation's in jeopardy if you're truly regenerate. I'm saying, how do you know you're truly regenerate? Have you really asked yourself, is there fruit in my life? Can people perceptibly see the change? Can people in my local church say, I see more of Christ in you this year than last year? Or are you the same kind of person, just more religious, right? Friends, the Bible is chock full of warnings to not be deceived. And that's what this, we should walk away from this is, man, heart check. I think I'm genuinely saved. I think I'm seeing fruit. But is there anywhere in my life I'm not taking the seriousness of sin the way I should? And that reveal that maybe, at least in this one area, I still long for it because that's what I'm about. I'm still denying his lordship. right? We're going to end right here with this Hebrews chapter 12. It's a beautiful verse. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, he's talking about all the people that are in chapter 11, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which cling so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How do we do this? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. As the prophets, uh, Hosea said, your word sometimes cut us in two. And that seems like what's been going on in the last several weeks as we studied the minor prophets and even Jesus' own words here in Mark 3. Well, Father, your warnings to us are an evidence of your love to us. Father, I pray that there isn't a single person in this room that might hear your spirit calling them to righteousness, to forsake foolishness. Well, I pray that nobody would ignore that voice, that we would run from our sin and run to grace quickly. Father, that we would not be deceived and see sin as a bowl of, tr- of sweets and chocolate delights and see righteousness as something unpleasant, but that you would take the blinders off our eyes and you would help us to see that righteousness is sweet to the soul, Father, and sin is destructive. Only you can do that. Only you can do that. So we pray you'd work powerfully in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ's community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.